Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So, sit back and relax, or, you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. This week marked the 15th anniversary since I got sober. Uh, by that, I mean sober from alcohol. I had a very fucking serious drinking problem back in the day. And the catalyst for my seeking help was waking up one morning and having the horrifying experience of not seeing myself as I knew myself in the mirror. What I saw instead was what resembled a corpse, meat, dead, without my soul in it anymore. One of the things I hate to talk about is the fact that I have one true phobia that I can say, honestly, clinically phobia I has, and that is of death. And so it literally took me saying to myself, I am going to fucking die if I don't stop drinking for me to finally get help. And if you know anything about alcoholism or recovery, you probably heard people use the term rock bottom for the point where you realize this is it and you can't dig any deeper. For each person, that's really different. Some alcoholics have what I like to call bouncy bottoms, right? Like they hit some sort of small resistance and then they just say, you know what? Fuck it. This is just not for me. And then you'll see them and hear the stories in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for years. And I was sitting there thinking, really, that was it? God, I was so much more of a mess. And, and, and you saw yourself going towards where I had been and you stopped yourself. Wow. What an amazing feat. But the reality is we all in our lives need to learn the way that we learn best. Some people are experiential and will not learn the lesson until it beats them upside the head. Some people can pick up a book and learn the lesson. I had a guy I dated when I was in my early 20s, moved to LA, who I found out from friends, mutual friends, so this was verified, that apparently learned to ski by reading books on the physics of skiing and watching some videos and then went out and jumped on a double black diamond course and just fucking did that shit which is just terrifying to me because first of all, the fuck are you doing skiing? What a bad idea. None of you were going to ever convince me that skiing is a good idea for real. My God, 
dozens of miles an hour while you're on a pair of sticks with maybe, you know, some protective gear? I don't think so. I do not think so. (laughs) But everyone has their limit. Everyone has to figure out for themselves individually how they're going to figure their shit out and what they're going to do. It's interesting because my owner slash husband, uh, Georg Friedrich Haas, also known as Der Spousemeister, I prefer calling him the Spousemeister. We actually very rarely call each other by our names. I am always darling with no R in there. <laughs> and usually I address him as Mr. Professor. <laughs> or other pet names that are too embarrassing for me to repeat. So I won't say them here. Maybe I'll do it like as a secret Patreon thing. (laughs) Oh yeah, P.S. Go do my Patreon, subscribe, or do me a buy a cup of coffee thing. It would be really wonderful to help to offset the cost of the podcast because while I am paying for it right now, I'd love for it to be self-supporting at some point sooner than later because woo, there goes that money. Anyway, there's my commercial. So yeah, my my partner, Gerg Friedrich, doesn't drink either. What's interesting though is that he doesn't drink because he's super arrogant about his fucking brain. And he was always really concerned that alcohol would damage his ability to compose. And that sounds sort of okay on the surface, but the second underlying thing there is you would think, okay, well, you know, a glass of wine is not going to impact your ability to compose. And that's true. But about himself, he is also aware he has issues with impulse control. And I'll tell you, watching watching this incredible, wonderful human being walk back and forth 72 times to finish off a bowl of corn chips that are sitting on the counter and and eating them one by one by one and then going, I'm just going to take a handful and then getting up and walking back out as he's in his head working. I was like, yeah, you would not do well with an addictive substance. And so both of us, it's really funny. We'll be somewhere and people will ask if you want to drink and he will jump in and say, neither me nor my wife take alcohol. And then I have, I feel like compelled to say it's because I'm a drunk. He's just really snotty about staying sober (laughs) and it works for us. And I'm so grateful, so grateful that I have a partner who also doesn't drink, not because I'm tempted by alcohol, but because after I got sober and this is really crazy, I actually started getting nauseous by just smelling alcohol. It was nuts. And then when I realized that, I said, wow, there's a drug called antabuse that is often prescribed for people who are alcoholics in order to make the consumption of alcohol violently uh, trigger violent illness. And I'll tell you at one point when I was younger, I thought about getting this medication, but that would have required my saying, I'm an alcoholic and I need help. And those were words that I was not ready to say at that time. I am now, I'll say it every day for 15 years, 15 fucking years. I I don't think I've done anything for 15 years. My gosh. I, I, I don't know if you know, but if you are not an addict, you probably don't know the a slick of self-hatred that we stumble through in our lives. The normal 
aspect of being a, an addict is hatred for yourself. It's an absolute lack of faith in your ability to even anything ever. It seems at odds, doesn't it, with the fact that so many people who are brilliant, amazing minds fall prey to this addiction. If you've been going through this pandemic, like pretty much everyone on the planet, and you were on social media, you might have had a very different experience of the past two years of seeing people joke, and I'm putting some air quotes on that, about how much they were drinking. Oh, well, you know, my second bottle tonight, and I was feeling my heart cringe and flinch because I'm like, you want to be an alcoholic because that's how you get alcoholism. It creeps up on you. Very few people wake up one day and say, oh, yes, today is a day I have become an alcoholic. I still can't put my finger on it. I do have memories of the first month I started drinking in the morning because I wasn't feeling well. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to feel your body and your mind at odds with one another. It's like being possessed. And it's part of the reason when I went through my experience of having a DT, delirium tremens hallucination, visitation from an alternate universe, who the fuck knows what it was. But my second day in rehab, I started talking to a hyena that appeared in the room and she was big and advising me that I needed to leave rehab. So while March 14th, 2007 is the anniversary of my sobriety, March 15th, 2007 is the anniversary of my introduction to my own personal demon. And it's been many, many years of work a lot of work to figure out what the hell to do with her. And what I realized is in the course of this discovery, we all have a dark, painful, ugly aspect of ourselves. It's a human problem. Now, some of our dark ugliness spills out, leeches from our very pores causes stress and strife in those around us. Some of our demons are very quiet and whisper only to us in a language that only we understand, but every single word pulls us back down into a darkness where we do not appreciate and understand our own light. Can you imagine living in a brain that hates itself. Add to that, I didn't even have the ability because of my absolute terror and fear of death to commit fully to just taking myself out, which believe me, that dark voice suggested many times. And I'll tell you what's interesting is that I a therapist asked me once if I'd ever had suicidal ideation. And I said, no, I did have a hyena suggest I kill myself, but we really weren't integrated at the time. And I absolutely was not for that. So I'm not sure that counts. And she kind of looked at me and was like, okay, this seems like something we should probably talk about. So we went off that topic. So I'm not sure if that counts. I think some therapists would probably say it does. I don't think it does though. <laughs> But what's amazing is to return from that 
the first thing I did after I got out of rehab was I went back home. My apartment, the flat I lived in was amazing. First of all, it was this gorgeous, huge flat in the Mission District on the top floor. And it was, let's see, one, two, three, four, five rooms uh, and a half room called a fainting room, plus a kitchen and then a room, a back room off of the kitchen and a little tiny sort of a deck in the back where you could stand. It wasn't really a balcony, but you could be outside. And for all that, when I first moved in in 1995, I was paying the princely sum of $1,125, I believe, which for me being a broke ass, I was really glad to be able to afford it. I was splitting it with two other people and we were living around the corner from a uh, local gang hideout and we're regularly, routinely hearing gunshots and gunfire on our block and around the corner because the Norteños and the Sueños, who were the two really big gangs in the area, had a DMZ in our block. So we were on 19th Street and there was an 18th Street gang and there was a 20th Street gang. So 19th Street, sort of the oh, Western Front, <laughs> I don't know what to call it. But that was where I lived for about 15 years, I think. And when I went back home after being in detox, I realized that I did not know how to fucking live like an adult human being because I had always had the crutch and assistance of alcohol when things got really rough. And I started to figure out who I was again. And spoiler alert, it was just me. It was always me. It's me all the way down. But I had been twisted and jacked up so badly by my own fear and my own self-hatred that I needed time. I needed to get a job. I needed to pay my bills. You know, I needed to apply for unemployment and, and at least have some money coming in, which I did. But oh my God, how was I going to find a job? How was I going to earn my place back in my theater community? What was I going to do? Had I burned all my bridges? And so often when people are addicts, they just destroy everything around them and leave smoking wreckage in their wake. I had somehow managed to not alienate the people who loved me the most. And... I think a lot of other people sort of knew I had a problem and didn't know how fucked up I was. And so by the time they found out, it was me telling them, hey, I'm okay now, but whew, that was close. That was close. The most comfort and the most reassurance I received was from the kink and leather and BDSM communities of which I'd been a part for all of those years. And to this day, I am so grateful to these perverts because so many kinky folks immediately stepped up and came out to me as being sober themselves. So within this cobbled together family that we had created, I found cousins and, and aunts and uncles and brothers and people who were also struggling in the same way that I had. And wow, was that... <sighs> It helped me to look into the eyes of these people and hate myself a little bit less every time. You know how cruel we are to ourselves and we say shit to ourselves. We would never say that anyone else ever. Amen. Yeah. 
when I looked in the faces of these other people who were telling me that they were sober, that they had gotten sober, and I thought about the filth that I had been spewing on myself for so many years, I said, gosh, I would never have thought that you were in the same boat as myself and you are just a wonderful and, and, and amazing human being. Maybe I can be a wonderful and amazing human being too. I want to fast forward to now. As I'm recording this, I'm sitting in Grafenegg, Austria, and 99% of you, I'm sure, have no idea where the hell Grafenegg, Austria is. If you are a contemporary music person, you may have heard of it because there's a lovely music festival that occurs here. My spouse Meister was commissioned to write a piece that will be performed this summer. And because he's a fucking nut job, he's created a site-specific piece that will that will be performed by, I think, six different full brass bands that are going to be walking around the grounds here at the Grafenegg Arts Center. You should know uh, the Grafenegg Arts Center is the grounds of a castle that's been retired. So I spent my afternoon today hanging out with some composers in a castle in Austria and then coming back in the evening to the beautiful, beautiful residences that they have built on the grounds that people can rent and use for retreats, et cetera. And it's amazing. I have conversations today and I'll stop as I'm speaking and say, who is this person even? Several of the people who are our hosts here asked if I was going to be back for the performance because they heard that maybe I was unable to make it. And I said, well, yeah, it's true. I'm going to be in rehearsal for an opera that's going up in Bern. Now you're going to think right now, well, what the fuck? You're not an opera singer. You are correct. I sure am not. However, I am an actor and a performer and opera frequently does include uh, contemporary opera, at least some spoken words, some spoken roles, the old sort of school of opera, I believe does not do so. But my beloved spouse Meister has had speaking roles in several of his operas. One of his most successful, Morgen und Abend, which means morning and evening, based on a novel by Jan Fosse. The entire first movement, the first half hour of a 90-minute opera, is an actor speaking. And it works beautifully. And since I performed Hyena, which is basically my voice spoken over music, it makes sense that this is something I could do. I'll tell you, I am absolutely terrified. A, I have never performed in an opera. I haven't performed in a full-scale production of a theatrical show since 2011. Yes, I've been doing it my whole life. I know that I will be just fine. However, hoo, 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 the fear is real. But when I think of myself in March of 2007, living in squalor, in two rooms that were literally knee deep in garbage and trash, and the waste of my life piled up all around. 
And I think of that person and I feel in my body the robotic, empty hopelessness. And I try to imagine the person I am today knocking on the door of that woman and saying, hang on, you are a gift and you're going to keep on giving. Hang on. Our lives can be really amazing and really beautiful and also really tragic and really ugly. And I know that as Americans, it's really hard for us to see how pain and ugliness benefits us, but we need to do so. In my first month of being sober, I was at a fucking AA meeting and there's a thing that happens and people in Alcoholics Anonymous will talk about what's called the pink cloud. And it's that sort of ecstasy that people have when they make a huge life shift. If you've ever like fallen prey to starting a new exercise routine and you're like, yes, everyone needs to be doing kettlebells. This is amazing. Or you, you know, whatever the fuck it is, find an analogy for yourself. I'm too fucking tired. <laughs> like, oh, her podcast was fine till she crapped out on the analogies. Anyway, so this guy's talking about how grateful he is for his alcoholism. And I'm thinking, this is some pink cloud shit. This is what they're talking about because you are not finna tell me that you are grateful for fucking up your entire goddamn life, bro. Uh-uh. What? And he was like, yeah, and my life is great now, and I'm so thankful. And I was like, thankful? How? To quote the incomparable Kanye West, how, Sway? <laughs> and then, you know, I proceeded to take the next couple of years and just further my thought of this guy was an idiot. I have no idea what the fuck he was talking about. I had no idea what he was talking about until I was approached to uh, do a story for Porchlight Storytelling, which is a wonderful performance and podcast in San Francisco. And when I was asked what I wanted to speak on, in my head, in my heart, in my guts, I felt the voice of this hyena saying, whatever you do, you sure as fuck are not going to talk about me. And I was thinking to myself, oh... No, that means that's exactly what I need to do. And I sure as fuck didn't want to. But I have a rule in my life that when I get slam dunked by an aversion to something, it's because it's something I need to do. That's just how my brain works. I, it's infallible. Probably not for you. You're probably more normal than I am. So I said to the producers, I'd like to talk about an experience I had in sobriety. And, and as I am the most established and excellent, flawless reader of the room, I could tell that this woman was trying to figure out a way to say no, in fact, hell no, without hurting my feelings. And she finally said, it's really interesting. I'm sure, you know, I'm really happy for your sobriety, but 
we get a lot of people who want to sort of do their AA shares and it's, you know, from a, she started to talk to me about the perspective of drama and structure in story and how a pre-structured thing like the AA share is not. And I said, okay, sure. But how many of these folks spoken about an African mammal that appeared to them and made every effort over the course of the 30 days in rehab to get them to walk out and drink again? Or are you, is that a thing you're, you're tired of hearing about? And she paused and said, that's all right, give me your pitch. So as I am wont to do, I pulled something out of my ass <laughs> and sold it. And then I got up on stage with my guts feeling as though they were filled with ice water, absolutely certain that I was digging a grave from which I would never arise because who the fuck wants to hear that kind of nutso bullshit? Hey, I had a psychotic break. Here you go. Let me tell you about it. Thank you. Good night. Buy my book. (laughs) I had, I think, seven minutes to tell the story. And I think actually it might be, there might be a link to it on my website on melina.com. What happened after I was done with that story was the first indication I had that I was onto something because I walked off stage and I was the last person to, to share a story prior to the intermission. And so as I walked off stage, I realized that there were, someone was rushing up to speak to me and said, Oh my gosh, thank you so much for sharing that. My husband is an alcoholic and I've been trying to get him to go to rehab and he, you know, and this woman was just pouring out incredibly intimate details of her life and relationship to a total stranger. But she said it gave her hope. And then someone else was right behind her and grabbed my hands and said, I'm in recovery too. Your story is so important. I hope you keep sharing it because when I listened to you, I realized I have a demon too. That it's, I, and then they burst into tears and were like, it's the voice of my mom just telling me over and over again, I would never be anything. And I drank to drown her out. Next person came up, their uncle, the next person came up, their sister, the next person came up, they were sober. The next person came up and they were not an addict, but they did struggle with depression And she said, your description of your addiction as this creature hounding you is so real. It's what my depression does. It just sits on me and stares and I feel it. And I feel a little bit less crazy because I heard your story. I heard what you had to say. Holy shit, that's not bad, is it? And then the next person, the next person, the next person. And I realized, yeah, yeah, I was grateful because at the core of my life is service and what service looks like changes moment to moment. When I was a kid, my service to my parents was being an actor and making money to help with our bills. My service to my 
parents also included trying to cheer up my dad when he was in one of his depressive phases. <laughs> I don't know what three-year-old me thought she could do in the face of manic depression, but I tried my best. And I sang and danced and brought my dolls in and played with my father, even though he would sometimes only poke a hand out from under the cover. But he would sometimes poke his hand out from under the covers and play along with one of my puppets. We had a whole thing he used to do. I had a puppet that he would call Peach Pie. And Peach Pie would pop out from under the blanket and say, ah, phooey, and then go back in. And I try to imagine, because at that point, my dad would have been in his mid-20s, struggling with depression and anxiety and mania and PTSD, and yet he still made an effort to reach out. And I'm grateful for that. And I also see how living in a house where you had to be hypervigilant because you never knew what anyone's mood was going to be like put me in a position to have a great deal of empathy, but to also be really very vulnerable. Having gratitude for the aspects of ourselves that make us scared or vulnerable is hard work, but I'm so grateful that I've been able to do it because what that means now is that I have been broken on life's wheels and put myself back together. I did that. I did that. We all have things to be unbelievably spotlessly proud of that we accomplish on a daily basis. And so often we do not take the time to say, you are a fucking badass. Holy shit. Look what the hell you did. So I would like for you to do that today. I would like for you to sit and think about the badassery of your life. Because if you're alive right now, you have done some badass shit, period. I don't give a fuck who the hell you are. And I don't give a fuck who you think you are. If you can't pull to mind the awesomeness of who you are, you stop and you rewind and you start this fucking podcast again till you goddamn figure it out. Because it's absolutely what will keep you alive when you're on that struggle, when your fingers are barely holding on and you're sliding further away into a dark place. You need to know you fucking kick ass. And I don't want to hear you can't find a thing because you got one. Are you breathing? That's amazing. Do you know how many systems have to work together to keep your ass alive? It's a lot. I'm just going to say it's a lot. Ask your doctor. <laughs> I'm going to go now. I'm fucking tired. I'm past the deadline. I'm hoping that my delightful producer, well, I think he's used to me by now because <laughs> I'm a goddamn mess. I love you. I super do. And it might sound corny or whatever, but oh my God, you're amazing. And I'm amazing. And I'm a badass. And I fucking have so much shit to do in my life. And I'm so humbled and so grateful that I have today this opportunity to do it. And tomorrow's not promised, as they say, right? But goddamn, the promise of tomorrow is delicious. You've been listening to All That and Mo. 
Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb, theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.